Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the School of Unlearning podcast. I'm excited today to have Dr. Andrew Hill of Peak Brain Institute on as our guest. Dr. Hill is one of the top peak performance coaches in the country. He holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA's Department of Psychology and continues to do research on attention and cognition. His research methodology includes EEG, QEEG, and ERP. I promise he will explain what those mean in our episode. He's been practicing neurofeedback since 2003. In addition to founding Peak Brain Institute, Dr. Hill is the host of the Head First podcast with Dr. Hill and lectures at UCLA, teaching courses in psychology, neuroscience, and gerontology. All listeners of my podcast and followers of mine get 50% off of their QEEG brain mapping with Dr. Hill. You can check them out in LA, New York City, and St. Louis. And if you don't live in those cities, they offer virtual support that comes with the same high-touch care. In this episode, we cover quite a bit. Um, I do share a little bit about my journey in working with Dr. Hill back from 2019 to even today on him and his team helping map and remap my brain. We also talk a lot about the pivotal moments that turned Dr. Hill onto the power of the brain's capacity to heal, which is pretty incredible, his story, and how his work in gerontology and also different facets of mental health and psychiatric care have, have influenced his sort of approach to neurofeedback and patient care, what neurofeedback is and also the benefits of it, how to think about making small changes that influence disease, and the role that sugar plays in chronic health conditions. I think you're going to love this episode, and I really, really encourage you, if you have the resources and time, to check out the work of Peak Brain Institute um, and enjoy this episode. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the School of Unlearning podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Nice to see you again. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you virtually. Um, right. So I know you're you're camped out in LA. Um, I'm actually, you know, so I've been to your center quite a bit, Peak Brain Institute. Um, people who follow me on social media know I talk a lot about the neurofeedback that I've done with you and your team and how life-changing it's been for me. Um, so it's only right to highlight the work you do, but I'm so curious to figure out how you got into this work. I know it's been years in the making, um, decades, but I just wanted to have us um, explore life for you growing up. Um, I'm, always, I'm just curious if you were interested in the brain and health, human health growing up. Um, and when you maybe had some turning points where you started to put your energy and direction in that direction. Yeah, I guess I wasn't interested in the brain as a little kid necessarily. Um, but I was the kind of kid that tended to take everything apart, you know, mm. uh, just figure out how it worked. Or I would, you know, to the chagrin of my parents, break whatever device we had or whatever bit of electronics I was playing with. More than once, I blew the fuses in the entire house with something I was doing. <laughs> Uh, but then, um, I think my interest in the brain really started. My, uh, younger brother was in a sledding accident. I grew up in Massachusetts and he sledded mm -hmm. into the street and was hit by a car in the winter and was in a coma for about, uh, two, two and a half months. Wow. And he had a brain injury and lost a piece of his brain, mm -hmm. uh, about here. And, you know, he went from this vibrant, so silly, intelligent kid to not conscious, you know, and, mm -hmm. 
going into the hospital and sort of seeing this dramatic change in consciousness um, really sort of, uh, you know, made me start wondering about the brain and how it worked and mm -hmm. what was going on. And then he, he recovered, he came out of that coma and he spent a couple of years sort of retraining some, some function. And he was largely uh, fine actually, which is great. Um, the rule of thumb here is that the younger you are, when you have a brain injury, the less it seems to matter globally. Cool. Um, you don't end up with specific problems, essentially. You end up with maybe some subtle things, but nothing dramatic. And that was true for him. Mm -hmm. But watching him relearn to you know, walk and a few other things um, and seeing how he could at age you know, nine or 10 or whatever it was, mm -hmm. um, seeing that recovery of function, that plasticity, we, we, we call it now, was pretty impressive. and. Um, then, uh, a few years later, you know, I was in college and I got my first, you know, real, uh, job working in residential homes for profoundly disabled adults with cognitive, physical and communication challenges. So most of my clients living in the homes were deaf, blind and mentally retarded and had other things like cerebral palsy or seizures, seizure disorders or other stuff like that. Right. So really people who were fairly, you know, at the edges of human function mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And yet they still had fun and they still thought things were hilarious and they still masturbated mm -hmm. and they still mm -hmm. you know, TV shows. And even though their communication wasn't like ours and their experience might not have been exactly like ours in terms of life, we would still do things, you know, socialize and go out in the community. And um, that sort of gave me another perspective about how brains can be. And after a few years of that, I started having dreams, uh, literal dreams where I was suddenly communicating with speech with these clients. I'd, I'd, I'd you know, have a relationship with these clients I was working with and then go to sleep that night and have them talking to me in my dreams and go, oh, okay. And so craving that additional human mm -hmm. development. And you know, we, we did some skill building and some learning and, you know, people are not fixed at any age. So, uh, we saw some improvements in function with these people, but I spent a year with one client teaching him to use a fork a whole year wow. doing subtle reinforcement where he, you know, could, could actually use a utensil. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was mostly because he really liked to go out to restaurants, but he was a little bit inappropriate with food. Mm -hmm. So this was a way to help him you know, have more agency, more dignity in a, in a more you know, typical environment. And that was great, but you know, I uh, it was an awful lot of work just to get a small change in someone's function. Mm -hmm. So I went from that environment. I've been about five years working with that com that client community. Uh, I went from there into acute crisis psychiatric work, mm -hmm. where people were, in some ways, suffering more, but they were more typical. You know, people with major psychiatric problems, major drug abuse, um, trauma physical abuse, all kinds of things. But it was an inpatient lock facility. It was the most violent facility in the state of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And within six months to a year, I was sort of in charge of showing up to a crisis and calming it down and or keeping people safe. I became the head of the, the program that was teaching restraints and teaching ways to do crisis intervention in the hospital. And we were having, this was, a, this was the time in mental health, which is still not better now, but at that time, the sort of pay structure around Medicare, Medicaid, mental health had collapsed. Mm -hmm. And so the first year I worked at the hospital, the average inpatient coverage was 11 days. And by the third year I was there, it was down to two days. And for psychiatric stuff, especially crisis things like antidepressants, it takes a few weeks for, for sometimes those major interventions to start working. Right. 
So the hospital was not doing all that great work. I mean, we were, we were up to 30 or 40 emergency codes a shift round the clock, three shifts yeah. uh, a day. Yeah. Um, when I was, when I took over that role of being the head sort of interventionist and I changed a little bit how we did things. We didn't just go in with hands on first and we did a lot of trying to deescalate and a lot of, um, you know, dignity and agency providing stuff instead of trying to just tell people to stop doing things. Yeah. We managed to get down to the place where we were at only about two emergencies a shift, you know, after, uh, after some, some ways of, of changing. So even in that acute environment, I was, you know, pretty pleased that we were making progress, but, um, I got injured. I, I blew up my back, my lower back after a few years working there because of just not enough staff and, and too much physical stuff. Right. And, um, I couldn't do the hands-on work I, I had been doing. So I moved into more of a case management role and I worked with uh, latency age, you know, four to 10 year olds wow. on a unit there. And I got really, really enjoyed that actually. And I, Turns out because of my initial work and the work uh, at the hospital with the children, I had a really good ability to work with kids that were struggling, autistic kids, kids with developmental issues, kids that had reactive attachment disorder and other extreme behaviors. Mm -hmm. So um, I really enjoyed doing that work as a case manager for a couple of years, but both with kids and with the adults I saw in the hospital, there was sort of this revolving door of mental health where right. they would spend a week or two in the hospital leave. And as a case manager, I would do lots of work with the home or the school or other services to really build a container for them and, you know, more things they could uh, get support from outside of the hospital environment. And yet they would still come back a few weeks later when their parent was abusive, when they got back into heroin, when they got yeah. kicked out of the house, yeah. when some crisis happened. So I got a little, a little dis, uh, disheartened around yeah. the state of mental health. Right. And I ended up going to high tech for a few years in, uh, in Boston area during the big tech bubble. And then it burst, uh, after a few years. And so I was sort of missing the human service stuff. And I'd heard about this thing called biofeedback on the brain or neurofeedback. And there was a place in Providence that was doing, um, a developmental population focused work that mostly autism. And with, with my experience, I thought, great, I'll, you know, bring my tech in, bring the, the kids stuff in and. I went down there to do some shadowing and see what they did and walked out with a job hmm. because I had the experience and they, and they needed me, uh, you know, with my kid experience, I think. So I worked there for a few years and was shocked at what I was seeing. Yeah. Um, historically, I'd worked a lot with ADHD, with autism, with anxiety, with trauma, and I didn't see a lot of change. I saw some behavior management, but not a lot of progress for the individual. But working at this center in Providence, which still exists, it's called the Neurodevelopment Center. Um, I was seeing incredible things from my perspective at that time, right. which is ADHD symptoms lifting entirely for most people, trauma getting resolved, the, the re reaction to trauma getting resolved for a lot of these kids that had really significant trauma. Um, even things like autism, the sensory integration, the eye contact, right. other things like that were actually getting addressed. And that sort of flew in the face of what I understood to be true about what we could do with people's deep suffering and deep development issues mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. so I was pretty excited. Mm -hmm. And I spent a couple of years, you know, being feeling like I was doing really good work and you know, having people move through transformation again and again and again. Um, and now I know, you know, having worked in neurofeedback for more than 20 years, now I know that's actually pretty common across brain things. You can make change. But that was a little bit um contrary to what I had understood from the traditional inpatient psychiatric acute medical kind of perspective. And at the time around, it's around 2000, 
in the field of neurofeedback, there were probably three or four different schools of thought about how this stuff worked. And we still don't really deeply understand how neurofeedback works. We have some you know, technical things. We can create effect. We can steer phenomena. Right. But a little bit of disagreement even now about what's actually happening and how to get the best effect and how to approach neurofeedback. Yeah. And the field's been around since 1967. That's when it was sort of discovered. Yeah. Um, but this was around 2000, and there were two or three, maybe four schools of thought that were really fighting with each other. A lot of vitriol, a lot of conflict, a lot of our way is best and everything else is stupid. Right. And yet, you know, all these schools of thought were producing good results. results. Yeah. And yet they weren't reconcilable in terms of how they thought it worked. Yeah. So I call this a blind men and elephant situation. You know, we all have a piece of something we're describing and nobody really understood uh, what was happening. Mm. And that got me to go back to grad school and study neurofeedback essentially and look at how it was operating in the brain and how attention works in the brain and a bunch of things I'd, you know, dealt with clinically, mm -hmm. but take the neuroscience perspective and dig into the brain a little bit more. Yeah. So I didn't know uh, much of your story in coming into this. I've obviously only worked with you in the last couple of years, but this is a really, really profound story you have. And the story, particularly with your brother growing up, he was eight or nine or 10 years old. How old were you when that happened? I was... Uh, freshman, sophomore in high school. So, so a little bit older. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting how those pivotal moments really shape like how we see the world. And also it sounded like from a very young age and it sounds through your adulthood and even to now, just incredibly empathy driven, you know, like to see human suffering in that capacity and to see the limitations that we have had in medicine in particular psychiatric care really fall short for people is, is heartbreaking. And um, I'm, I'm sure that is still driving you today in some ways. It, it is. Uh, I have to say that the empathy, the sort of, you know, feeling for, feeling with, empathy, compassion, sympathy, I, I believe that's something we're deeply uh, built with, all of us. And it gets, it gets sort of inured or the callus gets built up around that thing for many of us, especially in a modern world. And I had the, the luxury of growing up in extremely rural um, environment, you know, I grew up, I, I was born in Maine, grew up in Massachusetts in a farming town that had more cows than people. <laughs> and, uh, I think growing up in an extremely rural, low key environment in the seventies and eighties kept me a little bit from, you know, getting too cosmopolitan. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. when I ended up going into work with residential environments or inpatient, it, you know, I still had the skills we tend to have, the, the, the ability to feel and to feel, you know, for the other person that I think is built into humans at a pretty deep level. Okay. And I found that bringing that skill set, um, good observation, pulling my own personality a little bit out of it to let people have their experience, mm -hmm. um, that was something that I was, that I was very practiced at. And you have to have decent boundaries to not feel too strongly when people are acute, like in a, in a residential environment. You also have to have good boundaries to not let your own stuff make people worse in an acute psychiatric environment. Right. right. So having practiced that and then moving into a more scientific perspective, it let me bring that, uh, you know, need to understand, but from a place of trying to support and see people from where they are, it let me really... Um, you know, bring a skill set that I had heavily developed, if you will, into other areas. Just like I took my psychiatric experience and that went to neuroscience grad program, didn't have a deep neuroscience you know, education. I had some, I got a, a bachelor's with a neuroscience focus, but I was able to take whatever skill set I had and, and sort of leapfrog it into the next thing and add more skills. So mm. 
that was sort of my personal development was always adding one more new thing. Yeah. Like when I left grad school, the first company I created had a mixed addiction focus and neurofeedback focus. Mm -hmm. And I had some addiction experience because of inpatient, but not a deep outpatient. And I uh, helped found a company in Beverly Hills that did reintroduction of alcohol into people's lives. Hmm. People that were abstinent who wanted to drink again, they would do a structured way of teaching drinking, uh, which is very radical. But it was that same thing about meeting people where they are and not judging it and then being able to help them understand what's going on and then move through more and more agency. So the company I have now, Peak Brain, which has been around for six years, is focused on this personal training almost way of intervening, not a treatment way of intervening. Mm. Um, because it's about helping, like, you know, you and I worked together. I didn't say, here's what's wrong with you. I said, here's your brain. Yeah. Here's some phenomena. Yeah. What's important to you and what do you want to work on? Yeah. And I, I like that aspect of mental health almost or, or personal transformation where it's not, I'm the expert. It's more, Hey, here's how brains might work. What do you want to work on? Right. And you know, it's kind of like if you went to this, the, the doctor's office and had a sore shoulder and you took an x-ray of it and found some, you know, separated you know, tissue or something, mm -hmm. you would understand it. You wouldn't, you might be frustrated, but you wouldn't be angry at your shoulder. You wouldn't feel guilty about your shoulder. Yeah. And yet we feel guilty and angry and, and less than about our trauma response or anxiety or ADHD or seizure disorder. Yeah. And I found that neurofeedback could help me bring agency. The brain mapping piece gave people some clarity about things that are actually real, not just their fault. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the neurofeedback gives them things to try. So I didn't have the answer. I wasn't the treatment provider, but I am the person to say, here's some things that might work. Let's see what happened. And that, you know, giving people agency that have ADHD or trauma or yeah. seizures, I found that was so powerful for me personally, instead of being the expert, you know, yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I liked knowing all this stuff, but as an adult, I liked being able to help people take more control of stuff, especially when they've been living their lives for years, perhaps without being in control of their stress response, their sleep, their attention, et cetera. So yeah, that's sort of the long-winded answer. That's a, um, I just want to talk about agency for a little bit with mental health. I think one of the most you know, in the mental health stigma that we have today, which I think is softening a little bit. It's moving from a place of it deserves a seat at the table to it can not only deserves a seat at the table, but um, someone's mental health can actually, it's now okay that it dictates um, how they can show up in the world and that they can get sick days and there's mental health days and there's sabbaticals and like, and it's not done anymore with a sense of um, as much blame. Although I will still say there's sort of our own internal cultural narrative about you know, being sad or not being able to focus that we're flawed and we're broken. And I would say, and for anyone listening is, or who's followed my stories, like 2019, I came to Peak Brain for a QEEG. And I do want you to spend a few minutes after I'm done with this short story telling everyone what a QEEG is and actually what neurophobic is in the best way we can define it. Um, I felt completely flawed and broken. I remember feeling like I can't read a chapter. You know, I was working for a medical startup and I couldn't sit through an hour meeting without feeling like I was going to weep, like weeping or I couldn't focus. And so I was really distracted. And, you know, you saw my brain pretty clearly. And I think what helped for me was it was a sense of validation, you know, and being a, an athlete, I kind of felt like I felt, I kept telling friends, I was like, it's like I was walking around with a torn ACL and just giving it Tylenol for a decade. And you were like, oh no, like this is, you, you have in, effectively an injury and, uh, you know, here's how we can help, you know, get your agency and your control back. And, you know, we did almost like a, um, 
a full 180 in terms of my brain's capacity in about a year and a half. But um, yeah. that was that was a huge, huge turning point for me because I was like, oh, I'm not <laughs> like I'm not flawed and broken. There's actual valid reason. And my a lot of my um, brain and neuroinflammation started via a very serious concussion. And when I was 21 years old, I was unconscious for a couple of hours. And without me even telling you that you could look at my QEEG and tell me that there was like a trauma that happened to my brain and that it's not yet healed. So um, that's sort of my story and how I came into it. I'm happy to share more as we go along, but can you pause for a little bit and tell the audience what a QEEG mapping is and what this this involuntary um, method of neurofeedback does for the brain? Sure. So um, brain mapping or quantitative EEG, QEEG, is just an assessment. It's a measurement of you at rest and then we compare it to the average person your age because the brain does change a fair amount across age, especially up until age 25 and then after age 65, there's some big developmental shifts. Um, so peak brain and, and the way that I do brain mapping uh, involves two things. One is measuring your performance. So we have you do a ridiculously boring attention test so for boring. about 20 minutes. It's so boring. So boring. <laughs> so boring. Um, for folks that aren't familiar, we just this is called a CPT or continuous performance task. We flash a number on the screen. In this case, it's a one or a two, or we speak it over the speakers. And your only job was to click the mouse for the one and ignore the two. But of course, you start missing the one or slowing down. You start clicking on the two by mistake. And we can see if it's auditory visual performance, if it's short transient errors, if it's long-term errors. And we compared that performance to a normative database of people your age and said, okay, on a bell curve, here's a couple bottlenecks. Your attention, your impulsivity might be doing this mm -hmm. compared to the average person. And that's a pretty valid, scientifically valid way to look at the brain. A lot of psychologists and psychiatrists and neuropsychologists will use this kind of testing. But then we move into the more science end of it, which is looking at just how different you are than average. And people are weird. So the goal here is not to say, why isn't your brain like everyone else's? The goal is to say, oh, hey, here's your brain. And it's different in a handful of ways. Let's walk through those ways and figure out if there's some things that can get in the way. Mm -hmm. let's, let's look for the low-hanging fruit, the stuff that is your bottlenecks that is obvious. And so to gather the data, we have you sit down, put a cap on your head, uh, squirt it full of gel, and have you sit still for about 10 minutes, eyes closed, right. and 10 minutes with your eyes open. It's a little messy, but it doesn't hurt or anything. It's very passive uh, recording. And we're not measuring the moment-to-moment -moment content of your thought. We're not even picking up how you're feeling that day or if you're that tired. We're just picking up the 10,000-foot view averages, the traits, if you will, of your resting brain circuits called EEG mm -hmm. and electroencephalogram, the little motors and gears your brain is pumping out little bits of electricity. And on a bell curve, we compare you to average. And while on the CPT, we can say, here's a performance bottleneck. On the brain map, we can say, oh, here's a difference. And I don't know what's true for you. When I looked at your brain, at least I didn't know, oh, this is true for her. But I know it's plausible mm -hmm. for the average person when I see something. So it's an exercise. Here's a thing in the brain. Here's a brain wave in this region. It's got a higher or lower amount than average. And for some people, it might mean this. Does that sound right. plausible, right. relevant, and interesting to you? And if you're like, well, yeah, that sounds like me and I care about it, well, then great. Now we know enough to go after that and try to make a change. So most people in the field of neurofeedback, there's maybe between five and 10,000 of them, not a huge amount in the US, um, the professionals. Mm -hmm. Most of them are therapists, and they do this from a therapy or medical kind of perspective of treatment, top down. They're the experts. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do that. So 
you know, when I looked at your brain, I bet you had the experience of me not sort of giving you diagnostic language, mm -hmm. but trying to drop one level below that and say, oh, this part of your brain has this feature. It tends to work this way. Mm -hmm. And therefore it might be, you know, providing this experience or this resource, you know, pinch for you. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't remember it was a couple of years ago. I don't remember exactly what we saw, but I do remember there was, um, you know, some, some neuroinflammatory high delta waves. There probably was a little bit of threat sensitivity in your brain. If I think oh, if yeah, I remember correctly. I anxiety in the background, yeah. emotional dysregulation. Yeah. Okay. So let me give folks a specific example of what we might see in a brain like that. Um, again, not that this is your brain necessarily, but a pretty classic way to be a little bit threat sensitive is if the mm -hmm. eyes are closed, there's often a blob of red on the back middle of the head. There's a, there's a spot called the posterior cingulate. And its job in brains in general is to help you orient to the thing you must pay attention to and change your behavior if you need to. Mm -hmm. So if you're driving your car, and you get distracted, the posterior cingulate says, oh, watch the road, and you reorient, or someone yells, hey, heads up, and you catch the, the ball. Great, good job, cingulate, for helping me reorient as I need to. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the brain learns the world is not especially safe or predictable, and the cingulate kind of cramps up like a muscle that's doing its job a little too well. And people often experience that evaluator getting stuck in high gear. And that'll, uh, that produces a, a, a flavor, if you will, of the mind that I call rumination. Yeah. This sort of worried chewing on things. The brain's like looking for the possibility of danger. It's taking things a little bit more negative than it might need to because the cost of missing danger and trauma is extremely high. Yeah. You can miss pleasure all day long. There's pleasure tomorrow. There's yummy things the next day. Right. You miss the tiger or the whatever, mm -hmm. you know, the, the violence once or twice, that's it. You no longer have the opportunity to miss it again. Mm -hmm. So the brain biases you towards ramping up those resources. Human brains have a negativity bias, mm -hmm. essentially, mm -hmm. when the world uh, educates us around that. I, I kind of view the posterior cingulate akin to the way the low back might spasm up in a car accident so you can walk away. Mm -hmm. but then 10 years later, it's kind of tight yeah. because it's not you know, regulated as well. It's doing its job a little too well. Yeah. So I wouldn't say to somebody, oh, you have trauma. Oh, you're threat sensitive. I would say, oh, it's plausible that your brain is sort of looking for the thing to worry about. You know, do you experience some rumination? Are you chewing on stuff? Sure. Is it hard to let things go? Are you stuck in your gut? And if people are like, oh, yeah, well, then great. This is likely, you know, sorry, you're experiencing that, but this is probably it. And we can now evaluate that in a way that will give you control over that experience if, if we're right. Yeah. Let's see what happens. So... One thing I noticed too, when you did my QEG, actually both times, um, and this I think is what separates you from what I've heard about other, um, you know, clinicians who do neurofeedback and who offer this service to the world is that it was also a celebration of what my brain did well, which again spoke to the sense of agency that you were giving patients. Cause I didn't walk away. I knew I had trauma. I knew I had concussions and mold exposure and all that stuff and whatever, but I also walked away with like, Oh shit, like I have something good up here. Like I can, I can, you know, make some 10 degrees of change, five degrees of change, and I can get my life back. And so I think that's what um, drew me to your work in particular versus other doctors who I had met with who did similar work and were kind of maybe promising something a little bit different and, and, and viewing me quite differently, um, which I think, again, I, thank you. So <laughs> for making me not feel like I was, uh, you know, a hot mess, even though I might have felt like it. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, 
you know, as you think about, and for people who are new to neurofeedback, you know, you've said to, to me and to your patients that at, a, at roughly 25 sessions in, you start to see and feel a difference between 75 and hundred sessions in, you know, you really start to, you can remap the brain and see significant, you know, hopefully improvements. But can you talk about the longitudinal effect of neurofeedback and how it can be helpful long-term for people versus it, you know, it's not a one top one time stop in like some medical therapies right. can be. And it's, it's also, it requires a, a commitment of the person to, uh, to buy into the science and, and to feel the effect. Mm -hmm. So if you could talk about that, that'd be great. Sure. I mean, I think the time course of transformation is a bit different person to person. Uh, usually somewhere around as often as three to five sessions in, as soon as that, you know, two, three weeks in, mm -hmm. there's often some little hint of change. Like, wait a minute, my sleep was different last night. That mm -hmm. wasn't like my sleep is usually. Or, ooh, I felt kind of calm when my mother-in-law called me. That was weird. You know, like you get subtle changes in your resources. And so I view neurofeedback very much like personal training. Mm -hmm where it's iterative. You get some impact, you report back to your coach, they help you pick the next few workouts, push you a little further, you report back what's happening, and you just iterate through that process. So I generally, in terms of the, the course of training, we like to do at least 40 sessions with, with all clients. Um, starting 40 and up is where I think permanence really does kick in. Uh, you've, you've done enough building of new resources that the brain is sort of practicing the stuff it's doing now and is long and, and the stuff that's most easily uh, permanized or the, the lowest hanging fruit for neurofeedback is the stuff that all brains do every day. So not necessarily the deep trauma response that can take longer or deep seizures, you know, stabilization that can take longer, but ADHD stuff, sleep issues, basic stress, mm -hmm. those things actually change relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. And I can take, you know, a hundred people with ADHD and do 40 sessions on them, and most of them will move up on a bell curve, multiple standard deviations, and eliminate the diagnosis, essentially. Right. That doesn't mean I'm saying we've gotten rid of your ADHD. Yeah. It's we're, I'm working on their goals, not their diagnoses. Mm -hmm. But other people who have, you know, especially the, the neuroinflammatory stuff, concussions, um, mold and Lyme, these days, brain, um, right, seeing too. lots lots of Chemo brain, COVID brain. Yeah, COVID brain. Well. Oh, geez. A lot of COVID brain these days. Yeah. COVID brain looks just like chemo brain, looks just like mold and Lyme. Wow. From my perspective, I can't tell it apart. I can be like, oh, you're foggy, you have slowed processing, you're, you're irritable, you have no stamina. Mm -hmm. Did you have a concussion? Oh, you had COVID. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, sorry to hear that. What's going on here? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if that's true for people, but when they describe history, I can often go, oh, yeah, that makes some sense. Yeah. But yeah, um, when there's injuries, it often takes more like, 50 to 100 sessions before we're really, you know, becoming permanent. Yeah. But in simple things, like ADHD is not a disease. It's just the way your brain's tuned. Yeah. Anxiety is not a disease. It's a normal circuit. Yeah. Thank you. We have these, like the posture singular, we all have one. Yeah. It cramps up. You can uncramp it. And it's usually a pretty tractable resource. I just want to say that that's like <laughs> radical that you just said that. Like that anxiety is not a disease. It's actually a normal reaction. It's a normal circuit to X. And I just, I just want to like amplify that because we, um, we denigrate, we go into like spirals, we numb, we medicate because we believe we're flawed for having what I would, what you're saying is a normal reaction to threat and to perceived threat. So, yeah. And, and there's specific circuits that kind of will produce specific, almost label anxiety back midline, posterior cingulate produces threat sensitivity. So we get things in the PTSD land, you know, mm -hmm. that, and that axis, if you will, the anterior cingulate selects our focus. 
So that one cramps up and we get things in the OCD, the perseverative songs playing in your head, intrusive thoughts, nail biting, mm -hmm. you know, little ticks. That's the front midline. We've got a spot behind the right ear called the temporal junction that takes the whole world in. Yeah. So we get sensory irritability and social anxiety from that one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the visual system wants to process vision. So if it stays activated with the eyes closed, it's hypervigilance. The brain's like, can't let go of scanning. Mm -hmm. But these are just the normal circuits that are doing their job a little too well. Mm -hmm. It's not like they're damaged or diseased in any way. And because they've sort of learned themselves into that mode in a regulatory, you know, responding to pressure of the environment and experience, they also are able to be fairly easily changed. Right. So that's, that's the good stuff, the easy stuff, even when it's pretty extreme, like some flavors of anxiety and trauma, they're often very uncomfortable um, or, or severe ADHD is often very disruptive, but they're not hard to change for most people. Right. And that's, what, that's why I really have taken this personal trainer approach to this because I don't want to be sort of reinforcing the diagnostic language. I want to be giving you some change regardless of what we call it. Well, your work in neurofeedback largely is, is more of a root cause resolution approach. It's getting to, you know, and what's interesting, and you have worked in many realms of psychiatric care and medical care, is that, and this is when I came across your work, I was like, oh, this is like a light bulb moment for me because I was working at Parsley Health. And so we, we had a very progressive, like forward thinking a way of care, which I'm very proud of and I support them very much. But when I came across your work, I was like, oh, this isn't chemistry obsession. This is circuitry. And that's what allowed me to be like, oh, I, I'm bought in. I can, I can invest in this. And this is something that will help me because I understood that, you know, it, we can't, we can't give people metformin if they're not willing to eat more protein, fat and lean carbs, you know, low, low carbs. So I, I just knew that from a fundamental perspective, I couldn't skip that step. So, um, yeah, I kind of was bought in from that perspective. It also tends to be a little bit freeing because if we can take the the label someone's been carrying around, drop below the, the, the label, kind of put it aside and talk about the individual resources you might be experiencing pinches or bottlenecks in, mm -hmm. then you get to sort of say, yes, that thing is true for me without re-embracing the label mm -hmm. necessarily. Mm -hmm. And if you can think about your cingulate or your temporal junction or your inhibitory control on the right-hand side for impulsivity, it ceases to be caught up in the whole stigma of the entire label and the entire diagnosis where you have to, in some ways, believe someone else's perspective on you. And it starts being about the more specific things that might be what you care about. So right. it lets us work on stuff without buying into the stigma any further. Um, I'd like to, to turn the tides and talk a little bit about you making the case for people embracing neurofeedback as prevention. When we think about like dementia and Alzheimer's right now, in the next 25 years, the numbers are expected to quadruple and that we know the effect that will have on caretakers and families. Um, now, you can speak to that to whatever degree you want, but if someone's in their 30s and they're having these moments of brain fog and mild anxiety and some forgetfulness, nothing radical, but we know that there's some level of neuroinflammation there. Can you make the case for people in their 20s and 30s who look strong and fit, who are having some mild neurocognitive issues to think this way and to approach care this way for their brain? Yeah, let me unpack that a little bit. Um, I actually was a gerontologist for a bunch of years. I taught gero at UCLA for 12 years. Uh, so I have a pretty good perspective on how um, the brains unfold across age. I think what you're referring to in terms of the increasing you know, burden, if you will, of, of, of aging medicine and aging diseases, I think by 2025 or 2020, maybe 2030, 
there'll be more people in this country above age 65 than there are below age 18. Right. And everyone thinks of uh, Florida as the old people state, but actually it's like Maine and other states like that now that are, you know, half elders. Um, so there's a graying of the U.S., you know, but there's also an increased level of health in elders. There's something called compression of morbidity. As, uh, as we get better at, at, at handling chronic disease, we don't spend 30 years declining with diabetes, with heart disease. We actually live a pretty good life and then we drop dead at the very end of life, having very little suffering now, relatively speaking. And a lot of gerontology, a lot of aging medicine um, is really focused on compressing the illness into the very last bit of life mm -hmm. and having good stability of trajectories. So from a younger age, from about age 30, 35, there is some decline in trajectories in things like brain tissue, um, something called sarcopenia starts to kick in around age 30, mm -hmm. which is a loss in a few things, loss in muscle mass, bone mass, water mass. Mm -hmm. Oh, but you gain fat mass huh. to offset that. Right, right. right. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not necessarily, you know, it's it's both not pathological sarcopenia. It's driven by, um, you know, the, the telomeres have finished their replication, something called the Hayflick limit. Your cells divide about 50 times, then stop dividing as an anti-cancer mechanism, actually, a cancer control mechanism. But by age 30, that, that happens. And from then on, you can't really make a lot of cells in most tissues. And you get this um, replicative senescence. Cells stop dividing, and then they kind of hang out in this mode for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Mm. And that has other side effects, uh, other problems, if you will, like the, the fibroblasts that make collagen become... You know, they, they've stopped dividing so that your skin doesn't produce cancerous overgrowth, but the lack of divisions also creates an environment which is a little bit pro-cancer 20, 30 years later because it can't turn over the tissue as well. Right. It's that so, generation. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's called an antagonistic pleiotropy, something that has one you know, good thing at one point in life and less good at another place in mm -hmm. life. And that's what the, that's what telomeres do. They're, in, they're, they help us from getting cancer, but they also hurt us from aging longer term. Mm -hmm. Uh, in our 20s and 30s, there are no diseases of aging, pretty much. And you're not going to have anything going on that will lead to the diseases of aging unless it's very extreme. If you're an NFL player with lots of hits to your head and you develop CTE, absolutely, those little kernels of CTE become the kernels of your neuroinflammation, your dementia, your Alzheimer's later on. Right. But while there are some genetic forms of dementias, you know, Alzheimer's, they're not that common. It's very unusual to have the presenilin gene right. that produces familial Alzheimer's where everyone gets it at 45. It's kind of unusual. Yeah, yeah. The common thing is a metabolic disease that mm -hmm. irritates through glycation, through oxidation of tissues with sugar, mm -hmm. that irritates the tissue and causes insulin resistance. And you get this 20, 30, 40 year progression mm -hmm. of tissue falling apart. So while I think it's important to think about people in their 20s and 30s that think they're having short-term memory issues and they're concerned about their, their memory, it's actually a different process. It's almost never truly memory processes. Metabolic. It's almost always, it's not even the metabolic. It's almost impossible to get that kind of thing showing up in your 20s. But you, what you do is you get this inflammatory thing, like, like for instance, you had, mm -hmm. and it'll drag down your speed of processing. Mm -hmm. That's the primary thing that happens. So you think you can't, 
remember clearly because you can't pull things out of your memory rapidly enough. Memory's fine, but the load time is laggy. So you're like, right. hey, Brian, give me a word. It's like, here's a word, reach for it. Yeah. And it's not there. Yeah. You know, it's a little grinding the gears thing happening, but that's not actually an aging thing. It's more that you're not sleeping deeply enough. The inflammatory modes aren't dropping enough. Mm-hmm. And that's the life, you know, thing that happens 20s, 30s, 40s. And then starting in our 40s and 50s is when you get this metabolic accumulated hit, if you will, of um, oxidated tissue. So I think that we're better at this, you know, certainly in Western world where we have more awareness towards, you know, uh, glycation of tissues, driving Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, et cetera, through high sugar diets. Um, you know, we don't smoke as much in this country as we used to. Mm-hmm. Things like that are making us more pro-healthy. And we understand, I mean, when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, fat was bad. You know, right, right. and all the food was full of chemicals and sugar instead. Yeah, and that meant that my generation is, you know, has cancer and they're fat and have diabetes and things like that. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, we we're we're going more towards whole qual whole food, high quality, simple ingredients, low processing, low carb. That seems to be the pro health way, and that means I think we're getting a generation or two that will not have the sort of uh, metabolic syndrome, the American, you know, thick midsection that drives all these diseases of civilization. Um, there, you know, if, if you took a very developing country or a, a, a pre-industrial country, um, historically, they have a population pyramid that is shaped like this. Um, sorry, shaped like this, where there's more young people and infant mortality is high and childhood diseases and childhood death and childhood mortality is, 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 is high and people die out and you have few old people. And as the, as the culture gets more industrial, the pyramid goes to a column because you eliminate the massive causes of infant mortality and you get rid of any, you know, uh, sort of the violence and other things that can cause mid-year death. And in this country, in the U.S., we... Um, uh, this thing called the pig and the python. If you look at our population pyramids across the past 50, 60 years, they became pretty like much like a column with a lump in it traveling through the column, which is the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. Because we had a massive influx of births right after the wars. And that, you know, all, more schools got built in this country than any other point before or since right. for that, that one generation. And then there's the echo boom, which is my generation. You know, my parents are boomers. I'm an I'm the echo boom. It's a slightly smaller lump in that column moving through that uh, through that column. But then what happens is you start getting um, the causes of death stop being illness, malnutrition, infant mortality, and start becoming chronic disease. Yeah. yeah. Diabetes, Alzheimer's. Um, you know, if you went back 50 or a couple hundred years, it was gout. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the rich man's disease. Yeah. But it's that kind of diseases of excess of having too much energy in your body. Yeah. Too ready access for things like that. Too many toxins from the industrial world. So I think that's where we're starting to now get into a better sense of how to control some of those things. Mm-hmm. But you know, we're just barely getting there uh, in terms of uh, able to steer those environments. But at least we have that perspective, I think. So yeah, that's an interesting. And thank you for that context. Um, I'm curious. Are you are you hopeful about the future of neurofeedback to scale? I know that's part of your mission at Peak Brain is to bring it to the to more people who need it. Or so are you hopeful? Number one and number two, um, why do you feel like it hasn't yet scaled or been more readily available for people in the medical and psychiatric world? 
The second question is easier to answer. Um, this stuff's been around since 1967. Right. Uh, Barry Sturman at UCLA discovered that you could reduce seizure incidents by about half rapidly mm-hmm. across, first it was animals, that was his lab manager. Um, and the research has been really robust for that kind of thing ever since. And we moved from that area, the, the field did, into more of the childhood diseases of, if you will, of autism, uh, developmental stuff, seizure, um, because it was one of the few things that actually made a difference. Now, if it's so impactful, you know, why hasn't it not, everyone, everybody, I think you probably asked me this question after experiencing some change. Why isn't everyone doing yeah, this? Like, you know, everyone asked me that question. Yeah. And there's a bunch of answers to that. Some of them are a little bit cynical and conspiracy theorist focus. Some are just practical, but there's a couple of things to think about. One, this process is not the same for anybody. Right. This is personal training. It's iterative and it's individualized. Right. Really hard to do a study, an FDA sort of level gold standard study. It's not a monotherapy. It's, <laughs> it's not a monotherapy. Yeah. And humans are expensive to do research on, really expensive. And mm-hmm. you have to do this thing for 30, 40, 50 sessions. Nobody owns neurofeedback. So there's no machine set up to invest millions into the research and then recoup that with high dollar overpriced drug model. Mm-hmm. So here we go. <laughs> yeah. That's one reason. Yeah. Two, you couldn't double blind it until very recently. You couldn't do a placebo controlled study. Um, I actually, for my PhD work, did one of the first placebo controlled, double blind, randomized studies of neurofeedback, yeah. looking at placebo impacts versus the sort of effect of the neurofeedback event on the brain in real time. And that was, I did the research in 2010 or 2011 and wrote my dissertation around then. That was really the first, you know, double blind study. And that's, you know, pretty late in the field. So the clinical work has always far outpaced the research work. And those are, you know, real uh, answers. A slightly, I think it's still real, but slightly, you know, conspiracy theory focused thing is for years, the drug companies have been spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to poison the well. The big drug companies used to send two full-time uh, psychiatrists to circle the U.S. to go to all the ADHD, the, the CHAD meetings, just to say it didn't work. Jesus. And when Sturman published his, uh, submitted his, his, his initial findings to the journal Epilepsia, three days later or something, his grant money was pulled by NIH for no reason. Mm on epilepsy work and no one quite knows why supposedly and i've run into this i've gotten big insurance companies super excited what we're doing we get up to a certain level and we hit like some number two person who's been around for 50 years and hears oh neurofeedback oh no 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 right they poison the well too aggressively so and the last i guess inflection point here is that it's not simple to do necessarily i mean i taught you to do it someone taught you to stick wires to your head and run software the hard part is well what do you do next yeah you know, what happens after you get an effect? So neurofeedback has remained a little bit of a black art mm-hmm. and a practice, and it's remained a little bit in the fringes. And because of that, the software, the hardware has remained fairly expensive. Um, the people doing it are doing a medical model, so they're charging lots of money for it. And it's been it's been kept somewhat niche because of those reasons. Yeah, it's been, it's definitely, uh, it's not, yeah, it's not to scale from like a financial perspective for everybody, but I want to add one thing. You may not agree with this per se, but this is like sort of my spiritual feeling of this about the scale of it. Mm. I, or maybe you will, I don't know. But when you, when you said like, not everyone can like access it and have it, but like, 
But I thought to myself, if I can change my brain chemistry and circuitry and I can change my reactivity and I interact with a thousand people a year and they interact and like, can we, from a spiritual level, like deescalate the fucking madness in this world? If just 10 people in a very high powered company become less insane and less reactive and less traumatized, I, I like to think from a spiritual perspective that that's at scale helping something. I know that's not the yes. goal of peak brain. We want to no, get it to more people, yes. but I'm just like thinking that way as I realize how it's helped me in my life, you know? If we reduce one person's suffering, we, we reduce the suffering of hundreds, yeah. right? Yeah. Because of everyone that touches them. Absolutely. Yeah. That being said, Peak Brain's only been around for six years right. um, and my previous company for three years. And I've seen something like 6,000 clients, mm. you know, uh, across that time frame, which is way more than I would have seen as a psychologist, right. you know, and, and, and we do scale it. You know, this is one of our little amplifiers mm -hmm. that we use. I recognize yeah. it. And you know, we have a, we have one of, I would guess one of the most robust home training programs in the yeah, world. Yeah, you do. And mm -hmm. I have clients in so many countries and so many states, and we've taken the process out of the clinic and out of that medical, I'm doing it, I'm the expert, let me spend all my time, you know, one-on-one -on -one with you into a personal training metaphor. We teach you the basics. We get a sense of your goals. We look at your brain and then we start iterating through different workouts and you get to report what you like, what you don't like, what's happening. Mm -hmm. And we can, you know, we have taken it and compressed the scalability uh, constraints a little bit. So Peak Brain only has about 20, 25 employees. Right. And we probably see, I don't know, 150 active clients right now or something, yeah. which is significantly more than most of my colleagues can handle because the model's a bit different. I'm not doing therapy, right. basically. Right. So that's one piece of it. Doing remote work is another piece of it for scalability. And I mean, even since the time you've done it, we've changed a little bit how Peak Brain supports clients. All of our clients get this, you know, live coaching experience and initial onboarding. Mm -hmm. I think we did your initial instruction in person, perhaps, right? Uh, QEG. All that was in person. And I did probably like my first 15 sessions in LA with you guys. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, now maybe three quarters of our clients never visit an office at all. Right. We, just, we send the brain mapping gear out, we send all the training gear out, and we teach them to use it. We have live coaches work with them until they're comfortable. Everyone gets a private chat that they can jump on. All the coaches are hanging out, ready to jump in and help. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, we've compressed the current model to a really nice level of scalability already. And now we're looking at ways of taking it up another level. We're working on some software, which will help the communication between the coach and the, the client. Yeah. We are uh, trying to find ways to onboard more therapist types that really want to do neurofeedback, mm -hmm. but don't necessarily know how to. Um, I mean, we're every single week I get calls from people all over the world who want to do neurofeedback our way. And we're, you know, sort of becoming that global, you know, company to provide uh, a fitness perspective on the brain. I think that is making it more scalable. Mm -hmm you know, already, uh, it's, it's, it's still expensive. It's still not accessible to everyone, mm -hmm. but our prices in Los Angeles and New York are 25% of average. Yeah, they are. You know, mm -hmm. so I was talking to somebody cause we're, we're now available in New York with a physical office and I was talking to somebody recently and he's like, well, how much is it for a three month program? And I, I quoted him. He's like, Oh, that's great. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like it wasn't, it's no longer sticker shock because the rest of the field is so much more expensive yeah. generally. Well, um, I also think that's why I've been drawn to to you and your work is just the scalability in terms of like it being more approachable is, is so important because it's, it's life-saving work. And for people like me who had done 10 different things to get to baseline, like I needed that one extra thing through neurofeedback and the support over the last couple of years to 
to bring me back to like being super functional and myself again, and even better in some ways. Um, so that's, that's really huge. I want to ask you a few questions about you and your health with neuro, sure. do you do neurofeedback and what do you do for your brain and how do you approach this? Cause you know so much and you've experienced so much. I'm always curious how it sits with people. Yeah, I have not done any in a year or two at this point. Um, I you know, would dabble in it occasionally, but I did a bunch when I first went to that center in Providence. I would hang out after hours and try things in my brain, which I don't recommend everyone do, but uh, I was young and naive and I would train my brain and you know, with some guidance from my boss at the time. Uh, and I, when I started working there, I mean, I was in my late 20s. And I was trying to think about the next thing. Do I do grad school or, mm -hmm. you know, what? But I didn't feel confident at all about my ability to get through a advanced degree. Uh, undergrad was brutal. I was profoundly, uh, you know, ADHD, essentially. Um, at age 28, I was probably the worst ADHD that most people have ever seen. You know, pick the most disruptive kid who can't stop talking or moving and multiply by a few. And that was me in my 20s. Wow. Um, and I did about 18 sessions focused on my ADHD and just about got rid of it and was really shocked at how profoundly I was transformed. Right. And that gave me not just the impetus because I saw what was happening around me, but the capacity to say, oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to do grad school. And then, of course, a drive to do grad school around neurofeedback. So I went and worked in a laterality lab at UCLA and studied how we assess attention, how attention works in the brain and studied some neurofeedback because I was so focused on, you know, advancing it, advancing our understanding of it a little bit. Um, so I used to have significant challenges in attention and stress and sleep. Yeah. And I really did work out most of it uh, before I hit grad school um, in just a few months of neurofeedback. Right. Um, since that, I've gotten more and more into this idea that there's more things we can do for our brain health and our wellness and our optimization than just treatment-focused stuff. Right. So at the same time I started um, my first neurofeedback company, I also started a nootropic company, mm -hmm. the company TrueBrain. Mm -hmm. I helped found uh, a supplement company. Um, and since then, I've gotten much more into different aspects of sort of biohacking and ways to take control of the machine you're carrying around. And there's a bunch of things that I do. I do you know, daily yoga. Every morning, I do a lot of things focused on sleep maintenance and sleep hacking. So I get up extremely early um, every day. I'm up by four usually. Uh, I do yoga. I do fasted yoga in the morning mm -hmm. generally. Um, I tend to fast a fair amount. The intermittent fasting thing I think is the number one thing we can do that tends to work counter to the diseases of metabolism mm -hmm. that drive up all those aging things we just we described. Mm -hmm. So I tend to do. Um, you know, at least if I fast for 24 hours, at least once a week, mm -hmm. um, I tend to do uh, compressed feeding windows. When thinking about food, I think maybe because of the 70s and 80s focus on, you know, calories and fat, you know, we have this perspective, certainly Western world of diets, but you really have to think about energy coming in as something that is partitionable. And food, nutrition is partitionable in a few different ways. You can partition it based on calories. Some days are lower, some days are higher. Mm -hmm. You can partition on time. You're eating for a smaller window or a larger window. And you can also partition on macronutrients, carbs, yeah. fats, yeah. and proteins. And by playing with all of those things, you create a metabolic response. So 
you know, I think that all the old school low carb diets, Atkins and keto and whatever else are really getting to this, this really helping us, um, were counter to the Western diseases of excess energy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's a concept, concept I've been thinking about a lot recently that I call ectopic energy. And it's when energy flux in and out of the body exceeds the capacity of the system to manage it. Right. So our livers only handle max about 100 grams of carbohydrates stored as glycogen. And we do have some ability to store fat, actually nearly unlimited ability to store fat. We have no ability to store protein. Mm -hmm has no storage mechanism. And if we go above the 100 grams of carbohydrates a day, that spills out into bloodstream, becomes triglycerides, but right. then it turns into things like fatty liver mm -hmm. and fatty muscle. If you're storing energy around your liver as fat or in your muscles as fat, that's what I call ectopic energy. That is where all the extreme health risks and the, the modern diseases of aging, I think, come in, the glycation of tissues, the oxidation of tissue. Yeah. So I'd love for you to just make that connection for the audience and everyone listening of that connection, particularly to brain focus when we have glycation issues and we have um, metabolic uh, failure to some degree. What happens then to the brain and why? So the 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 brain wants to run on small amounts of sugar all the time. The brain is the only organ that needs sugar. Mm -hmm. But we don't need any dietary sugar. The body can create sufficient amount of glucose. We only need about 30 grams of sugar in the bloodstream total. And the body can create that, you know, a gluconeogenesis from protein, from fat we eat. Mm -hmm. um, when the sugar is higher than that, it has to go somewhere. And so, yes, it gets stored in these tissues uh, inappropriately, like I was describing. However, um, there's also the insulin signal. Insulin's a, uh, a fuel sensing, if you will, response with too much sugar, insulin goes up and it's supposed to go talk to cells and say, Hey, there's energy. You want to get some energy, mm -hmm. open your door, here comes some energy. Mm -hmm. But if there's large amounts of insulin all the time, the cells stop listening. It's like if you walked up to a door and we're knocking and saying, Hey, want to buy some chocolate, buy some chocolate. Mm -hmm. Eventually they stop answering the door. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is that that energy still has to go somewhere. Yeah. You don't just pee it out. You ha it has to go somewhere. Yeah. So you end up having higher amounts of blood sugar in the body and the brain bathing tissue. And sugar in the bloodstream will oxidize small fat molecules. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a big fan of lipid um, uh, theories about um, heart disease and brain disease. I think mostly it's lipids, L LDL and cholesterol, are the firefighters, not the arsonists. When you see high levels of LDL or, or cholesterol, it's it's a it's response, not the problem generally. But sugar is the killer, and I think that as it comes into the brain, first thing that happens is the neurons become insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. And so, in in early Alzheimer's and other forms of of inflammatory stuff and dementias, you end up with insulin resistant neurons, mm -hmm. and that just means you have somebody who doesn't have as good brain function, they have brain fog, slowed processing, they don't think as well, they're irritable, they don't sleep as well, and they crave sugar mm -hmm. because they're starved for energy. Now, interestingly enough, when neurons become insulin resistant, they're not resistant to ketones. Ketones is another fuel source the body can use. Mm -hmm. um, here's a point that I think a lot of people will often miss thinking about ketones or insulin or sugar. Only 15% of our energy in the body at any one point is coming from either glucose or ketones. That's it, 15%. And it's, it's a mix of glucose and ketones back and forth. Ideally, you're metabolically flexible. You burn what comes in yeah. and then you generate ketones or you, you make ketones if you need to. 
but the other 85% are free fatty acids in the bloodstream. That's most of our energy. So if you become insulin resistant in the neurons, your body can still burn ketones and your, uh, there's a path around that sort of inflammatory or insulin resistant level of, of signaling in the brain. So if someone has mild Alzheimer's, one thing you can do is give them MCT oil or coconut oil or other, you know, and uh, ketone salts, ketone esters, mm -hmm. and you bypass the insulin resistance and can actually salvage neurons by doing that. Mm -hmm. There's a really lovely program out there called the Brazetin uh, MEND or Brazetin Recode program, which looks at 37 factors yeah. that drive in all these oxidative stress things and glycation and inflammatory things in the brain. And Dr. Brezenda's program has taken extremely symptomatic Alzheimer's, people with 25% of the hippocampus left, yeah. I mean, really near people in memory centers, addressed metabolic factors through lifestyle and supplements right. and backed out symptomatic Alzheimer's again and again and again in case studies. Mm -hmm. So I think we're starting to get a handle on not just the amyloid and the plaques and things, but we're getting a sense on the progressive process. Mm -hmm. And again, people don't understand amyloid is not a bad thing necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Amyloid's in uh, part of the innate immune system. We have, of course, T cells, which learn about, you know, threats and we'll tackle them, but we're also born with an innate immune system. I'll go after microbes and things that are damaging. Amyloid is part of that innate immune system. Mm -hmm. And amyloid uh, comes from something, it, it's produced from something called amyloid precursor protein. And that APP can cleave in a couple of different ways. And it turns out the different ways amyloid is produced from APP, you get different flavors of amyloid, and there are signaling molecules that tell the brain how threatening the environment is. And you end up with this sort of like pro-inflammatory amyloid beta. But if you're living in a microbially dirty environment, amyloid beta saves your life mm -hmm. and, and, and keeps all the junk out of you. Um, and if you're living a, you know, in, environmentally like naive or clean environment, amyloid beta, uh, well, basically the, the the cleaving of amyloid in two versions either creates a brain that is building more synapses or pruning more synapses. Just like your bones have osteoclasts and osteoblasts that are dynamic tissue, right. the brain seems to have a signaling environment that is synaptoblastic and synaptoclastic for making tissue more dense or stripping things out. And we think about things like APOE4, you know, as the risky version of, amylo of, of fat molecule carrying uh, uh, genes and, and molecules and interacts with amyloid. But if you go to places like Papua New Guinea, where everyone has APOE4-4 status, which is the super high right. risk mm -hmm. version, mm -hmm. and they all live on diets historically, culturally of starches and tubers, there's no Alzheimer's and no atherosclerosis. None, yeah. or almost none. Yeah. And yet... You would think they're all APO4, they have really high rich starch diets, why not? Because the amyloid's being used to fight the microbes in the environment. But you put somebody in an office building well, eating sugar, it's and it just rusts the brain, basically. It's so maddening. It's like uh, the sterilization of our culture and what we've done to our food system, all of this really is, I think it creates this perfect storm of like what you're talking about, which is like, you know, these cultural diseases that are our most biggest. Yeah. And, it, and it's oxidation of fat through sugar. So yeah. it tends to be two pieces, the high amounts of sugar yeah. and the refined fat, the seed oils, yeah. the refined seed oils. I would tell people to do two things to fix their biggest risk factors as humans is avoid excess sugar. And I think excess sugar is anything your liver can't store. So you've got to stand under hundred grams a day right. of carbs and um, seed oils. 
uh, most highly refined oils in food are pro-inflammatory, have no nutritional value really, and they tend to cause a tissue to break down and oxidize. So avoid all the oils as much as possible. Avoid any excess right. sugar if you can. Right, right. Those two things will actually make most of us avoid the metabolic diseases. Right, right. Um, so there's a lot there from like a scientific brain perspective, metabolic perspective. Um, I do want to ask you a few more questions before we close. This is a, this is a podcast about, you know, unlearning and relearning and rethinking constructs that we've been fed or that we adopted uh, growing up. Um, and I'm just curious about one learning that you, maybe it could be from what happened with your brother, but one learning that you kind of absorbed or um, resonated with as a young person that still stays with you today. It could be a sense of hope. It could be a fact. It could be a story that allows you to be like, like decade after decade, this thing remains true for me. Well, I mean, I, th I may have touched on it already, but seeing my brother in a coma, unresponsive, mm -hmm. not having any experience of the world, so to speak, for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then seeing him go from, you know, minimally conscious back to being functional, back to walking, back to talking fine. He still had lots of impulsivity and lashing out behavior because he damaged part of his frontal lobe. Then he worked through that as a young person. And then he ended up, you know, being successful, going to college, having a family. I mean, he's, he's a pretty successful guy. Yeah. Seeing that massive dip in function and then a massive recovery over several years, that really made me question whether anything in the brain was especially fixed. Mm -hmm. And what I often tell clients when we see things in their brain is, oh, great, we're seeing this? Great. We can go after that now. And don't worry because the brain's more changeable than the body. I can get you... Yeah a good frontal lobe fast than I can get you abs in the gym. <laughs> I guarantee you it's yeah, easier. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So that is my big takeaway from all of what I've been doing probably my whole life here is that you don't have to tolerate what you don't want to feel. You can rebuild resources just like you might not like your gut or your sore back or your, you know, mm -hmm. whatever you care about physically. A lot of almost all of what we consider our mind or brain stuff. It's all tractable. It's all changeable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I would encourage people, you know, not to, uh, you know, not to feel guilty about what's going on, but also not to tolerate it. If you don't want to feel stressed or yeah. distractible or irritated or whatever, there are ways to change almost everything in our experience. And that is something that I don't think we've even scratched the surface of yet. Right. And transformation is yours to be had yeah. um, for most people. A huge transformation. Yeah, I, I would agree so, with that. I remember. There's my, there's my soapbox. <laughs> well, I, I think it's all true. And I think what, you know, a couple of things stand out to me about our, our talk today and also our work over the years is that um, change happens and health happens in degrees, that these small little movements forward are massive. Uh, one neurofeedback session, two, three, four, and then five. And then all of a sudden we can read again, like we can you know, I remember having slurred speech in 2019. I was so burnt out and inflamed. And then within a few months, I could read a chapter and I was like, oh, I'm not going to die. Like there's hope. And um, I think that that also to your, your work is just sort of brimming with hope and the optimism that we are, we have agency over our brain and what we can do with our life here. Um, I, it also demystifies things. I mean, I mean, you you posted on Instagram like a few months ago your your first brain map mm -hmm. and your more recent brain map showing that you dropped multiple standard deviations of delta. You know, brain fog yeah. and sluggish mind, right. like four or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just dropped it out. 
but you made multiple standard deviations of change against the average person in a couple of years. Yeah. And I don't think we have that perspective in most tra- in most human transformation that we can do that. We think of therapy as a long-term process. We think of aging, of illness, of recovery as these long-term processes. Mm-hmm. But we often take severe things and just pull their teeth and transform people in three to six months. Yeah, and- so that's what I want people to know is if you're suffering, I mean, our, our sort of unofficial slogan at Peak Brain is shift happens, mm-hmm, get mm-hmm. yours. You know, there's stuff to be had. If you can identify what you want to feel, you can iterate towards that over time. Yeah. And I want to, um, my last question to you is when we think about this concept of unlearning, um, which could be defined by many different people. And in, in some ways, this whole podcast, your whole body of work is about unlearning what the brain's capable of and that it's malleable. But more personally for you, I'm curious what unlearning means to you or what comes up when I say that word for you? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I do have this sort of radical, I guess, thought the deeper I get into neuroscience and the deeper I get into my own spirituality, which has got a Buddhist sort of flavor, mm-hmm. the less I'm sure about things like consciousness and identity. And I sort of, the more sciencey I get, the more I end up in a Buddhist perspective of the self as sort of an illusion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I do think, again, this is more of a Buddhist perspective, that the more tightly we attach and we grab onto the identity, you know, what is me, what is myself, the more suffering we often cause. Mm-hmm. And so from a, an interventionist point of view, you are not your diagnoses, you are not your resource limits. But I also think that you know, a lot of what we can do as individuals is reduce our suffering and take care of each other and have pleasure and joy mm-hmm. and love and those sorts of things. And that is, to some extent, the meaning of life. Mm-hmm. It's not about really anything else. And you know, I was just like every other young person who wanted lots of things, you know, 20 years ago. But I find myself especially satisfied for the most part day to day. I'm certainly frustrated and there's things that I want and there's things that bother me all the time. But I have less and less existential crises the older I get because a lot of it just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. What matters is we have agency to reduce suffering. And the bigger questions don't you know, they'll they'll sort themselves out is sort of my perspective, honestly. So I've stopped thinking the heavy weighty thoughts, you know, the stuff that I thought as a kid that bothered me, the, you know, big philosophical questions don't really matter to me anymore. Mm. What matters to me is, oh, there's a phenomena we'd like to shift. Great. Let's change that. Mm. I like that. I appreciate that perspective. Um, Well, thank you, Andrew, for coming onto the podcast um, and for the work that you do and for helping me get my brain and my agency back. My pleasure. It's um, hopefully created a ripple effect for the people I work with and, um, you know, all the friends and and family that I get to interact with. I'm um, a lot more happy and focused in my life. So thank you. Wonderful. My pleasure. Glad I could be uh, a support for you there. Hey friends, thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.